Hello and welcome to Hugh's Joy of Food, a bite-sized podcast celebrating all that's amazing about everything edible, from the simplest snack to the fanciest feast. I'm Hugh Smithson-Wright, and this week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I'm reviewing Brilliant Brasserie Zadal, tackling two listeners' questions about how to go about ordering the best dishes a restaurant has to offer in Ask Hugel, and sharing some tips on what to do with currently in-season wild garlic in Treat of the Week. Each week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review a restaurant in some way, whether it's one I've actually been to recently or a home delivery, be that a ready-to-eat takeaway or a make-at-home meal kit. First, a disclaimer. My job as a restaurant PR and consultant means that I'm paid to promote the interests of the handful of restaurants I represent. If I feature a client on this podcast, I'll make that clear, like I do on my social media channels, and in all cases, I'll make it clear if all or any part of a meal I review was complimentary. In the case of this week's restaurant, Brasserie Zadell, as I said when I reviewed its sister restaurant, The Wolseley, I have in the past undertaken some work for the parent group, Corbin and King. You can rest assured that everywhere I review, I recommend. This show is about the joy of food, so if you're looking for vicious eviscerations, this probably isn't the podcast for you. With that out of the way, it's time for this week's review. Despite it being a restaurant I love, and one I've eaten at so many times I've lost count, I was in two minds whether I should review Brasserie Zadel. For one thing, I only recently reviewed Bouillon Chartier in Paris, a restaurant Brasserie Zadel is inspired by, For another, it's only been a few weeks since I reviewed the Wolseley, which is part of the same family of restaurants, and I thought it might be too soon to feature another of Corbin and King's admittedly excellent establishments. But then I thought, hang on, this podcast is called Hugh's Joy of Food, and Brasserie's Adele brings me joy, so why on earth not? What's more, despite having some things in common with restaurants I've reviewed already, Brasserie's Adele is so special in its own right that I feel I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't review it. So here we are. As areas of London go, few are more instantly familiar than Piccadilly Circus, with its world-famous illuminated advertising hoardings, Statue of Eros, and so much traffic that to be like Piccadilly Circus has become shorthand for anywhere that's exceptionally busy. One thing it's not and never has been renowned for is its restaurants, which historically have tended to be only the bigger chains and multi-storey themed international tourist traps. But tucked away on Sherwood Street, just back from the maelstrom of Piccadilly Circus itself, is one very noble exception, and that is Brasserie Zadell. From outside, you could easily be forgiven for wondering if you've come to the wrong place, because although the signs undeniably say Brasserie Zadell, what you first encounter is in fact a pavement cafe of the smart but understated kind found on every street corner in Paris. And a very lovely cafe it is too, but that's not why we're here. Walk through the cafe, heading along the corridor to your left and down the sweeping staircase decorated with old French theatre posters, and you'll find yourself in a very grand lobby adorned with stylish murals and a huge crystal chandelier. Like a choose-your-own-adventure story, you have a few choices of where to go from here. If you're in the mood for some jazz, comedy or cabaret, you could take the doors behind you and enter Crazy Cox, the live performance venue where you can enjoy a light bite to eat while watching anything from moonlighting stars of Western theatre to New York drag legends. 
Take a right and you'll find yourself in the Bar Americain, the dimly lit American-style cocktail lounge where white-jacketed barmen whip up excellent classic cocktails served in gorgeous glasses which allow you to imagine for a moment that you're living like the Great Gatsby without the unfortunate hit and run or that bit in the swimming pool. But where you really want to go is straight ahead, under the chandelier and through the double doors into what is, without a doubt, one of the most beautiful dining rooms in London. I said in my review of Bouillon Chartier that Brasserie's Adele was inspired by its decor, and it is, but it's also, dare I say it, actually even nicer. Where Chartier's interior is mostly dark wood and glass, Zadell's boasts vast expanses of pinkish marble, including huge columns trimmed with real gold leaf. A bar-come-waiting area runs down one side. On the other, there's a stage where a jazz quartet plays most evenings. Slightly elevated at the back of the room, a cluster of larger booths ideal for groups stand under a huge clock, which to my mind gives the feeling of being in a converted railway station, like the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. If all of this sounds terribly expensive to you, you'll be relieved to know that Brasserie Adele isn't. Because of some very low prices, there are several starters on the menu under £4 and a three-course prefix available at any time for £10.95, there's a popular misconception that Brasserie Adele is a cheap restaurant. It's not. It's a restaurant where you can eat cheaply, which is an important distinction. It's better described, I think, as democratic, in that there's something on the menu to suit all budgets. So you could just as easily start with delicious carottes râpées, shredded carrots dressed with shallots and a piquant vinaigrette for £3.75, as an indulgent prawn and avocado cocktail from the Luke section of the menu at £14.25. You could then follow with steak haché, chopped steak in peppercorn sauce with a generous helping of salty crispy pommes frites for just £8.95. Or you might choose to splash out twenty nine fifty on the most expensive main course, sole meunier, whole lemon sole served with browned butter. The daily plat du jour selection at sixteen ninety five, which changes every few weeks, always offers some interesting choices. My favourites are the seafood volivant and rognon de veau à la moutarde, calf's kidneys in mustard sauce. My husband almost always orders steak à la Bordelaise, grilled flat-iron steak served with a generous quantity of a rich red wine and bone marrow sauce. For pudding, there's a selection of classic French desserts including crème brûlée, profiteroles and a superb chocolate mousse, but the one you really must order is the Ile Flottante. A light-as-air meringue floating in a lake of silky crème anglaise, drizzled with caramel and sprinkled with freeze-dried raspberries, I've long maintained that it's the best pudding and the most fun you can have for a fiver, at least legally, in London. Don't be put off by the menu all being in French and not offering much for vegetarians. The menu is available in English and there's a full vegetarian menu as well as a gluten-free one, so just ask for whichever one you need. To drink, there's a very decent all-French wine list, of which almost all are available by the glass or carafe as well as by the bottle – and there's plenty of choice for non-drinkers too. This is a great place to try citron pressé, that classic lemon juice, sugar and water combination I recommended a few weeks ago in an Ask Hugo answer on non-alcoholic drinks. Because the menu offers such a broad price range, it's hard to say what a typical spend per head is at Brasserie's Adele. Order the prefix and a glass of house wine, and even after you've added service and the small cover charge, which entitles you to basket after basket of baguette and wonderfully salty butter, you'll leave with change from £20. 
but kick off with a cocktail and the Baramary Cow, order from the Luke Selection, share a bottle or two of one of the dearer wines and finish with coffee and a liqueur, and you could spend five times that. The one constant is that whatever you spend here, it always feels worth it. And the beauty of the place is, of course, that whatever you spend is entirely up to you. Brasserie Zadel is just as well suited to a budget bite before the theatre as it is to an all-evening long blowout, and not many places can say that, especially in this part of town. If you can't get to Brasserie Zadel, or at least not yet, then you'll be pleased to know there are a couple of ways in which Brasserie Zadel can come to you. There's an excellent book, which as well as telling the story of the restaurant and the site it occupies, written by the late A.A. A. Gill, includes recipes for dozens of dishes like Boeuf Bourguignon, which I made this week and I'm pleased to report turned out perfectly, so they must be foolproof. You can also, at least for the time being, order a couple of Brasserie Zadel's most popular dishes, including the steak haché and chocolate mousse I mentioned, from Corbin and King's Home Delivery Service, which is available nationwide. But only for now. Co-owner Jeremy King has hinted that the delivery service may stop when the restaurants reopen after lockdown, so if you do fancy trying it, I wouldn't leave it too long if I were you. But the best way to experience Brasserie Zadel is, of course, to actually visit it, which I hope you will. Few restaurants anywhere in the world are so grand yet so affordable. Few offer so much fun in so many forms, from live cabaret to eel flottante under one roof. And as we come out of lockdown, and life hopefully returns to something approximating normal, fun is something I think we all want to see on the menu. For all information, visit Brasserie Zadel, that's B-R-A-S-S-E-R-I-E-Z-E-D-E-L dot com. Each week, I answer a listener's burning culinary question in Ask Hugel. This week, I've received two questions, which, while not identical, both raised themes which I thought it would be helpful to answer together. The first is from PJ in Seattle, who says, Hey Hugel, we love your podcast here in the Pacific Northwest. Thank you very much. My question is about menu choice, and particularly how to make the best choices when ordering multiple courses. I usually just order what I fancy, but I often feel that I miss the opportunity to elevate my taste experience by making more connected choices. Please advise. The second comes from John in Kennington, a little closer to home, who says, Hey Hugel, I'm one of those fussy eaters, or so my husband tells me, vegetarian by choice and gluten intolerant by genetics. I'm always embarrassed in restaurants when asking the waiting staff, drawing attention to it and having well-meaning friends dive in with suggestions for what they think is okay for me on the menu. Do you have any advice on how I can politely and efficiently let everyone know that I'd like to ask a couple of questions of the person in front of me and not have it become a ritual at the start of every meal when everyone should be downing their first martini so there's time for a second before starters? What I love about both these questions, coming from opposite sides of the Atlantic, is how incredibly considerate they are. PJ, you give me the impression that what you want isn't only to ensure that you enjoy what you order, but also that you do justice to the talents of the chef in any restaurant that you visit by ordering the dishes that really show them at their best. And John, it sounds like you've maybe had some negative experiences in restaurants, perhaps ending up feeling like the poor relation when your vegetarian and gluten-free dishes arrive and they're nowhere near as exciting or interesting as those of your dining companions. 
So what's really at the heart of both of your questions, and the reason I've chosen to answer them together, is how do you order in a restaurant to ensure you're getting the dishes that both show the restaurant at its best and most suit your particular tastes or needs? This is really thoughtful of you both, because as customers, it shouldn't be for you to do the legwork. There's an art to menu writing, and a good menu will make everything sound appealing. I'm not a fan of the kind of menu which goes into exhaustive detail about the variety and provenance of every ingredient. We've all seen them, the ones with descriptions like pan-seared 35-day age 16-ounce sirloin from Daisy the Cow, lovingly reared outdoors in Cumbria on organic grass by Bob McKenzie, Sagittarius. But nor do I like menus with descriptions so terse they make waiting for Godot seem chatty. The sweet spot for me is a menu which is informative, Name checks particular suppliers or breeds sparingly where it's genuinely useful or interesting to do so, and includes some detail as to how things are cooked, if it's relevant. In this way, you get a good idea of what to expect from any dish you order, while there's still being some element of surprise. I think an absolutely perfectly written menu PJ is the one at Marjorie in Seattle. It's a masterclass in writing a menu which makes you want to order absolutely everything. Which leads me to the part of your question, PJ, about making sure you always order the best things on menu. Well, again, that shouldn't be down to you. I always say that any restaurant is only as good as its worst dish. Some people will try to write off an underwhelming meal in a restaurant others have raved about as being their fault for having ordered badly. But a restaurant that only does a couple of things well isn't, objectively, a good restaurant. Nor is a restaurant good if its menu doesn't clearly show which dishes are vegetarian, say, and gluten-free, John. You should be able to see at a glance which dishes you can order and cut out any of the all-too-familiar awkwardness you describe. Many restaurants now, like Brasserie's Adele, have complete gluten-free menus, and some restaurants, like my client Paladar, just down the road from you in Elephant and Castle, are entirely gluten-free, so you won't ever need to worry there. Just to try to put your mind at ease though, John, there really is no need to be embarrassed about asking staff to signpost for you which dishes you can order. You're actually doing them a favour by ensuring that you don't accidentally order something you can't eat, or worse, will make you ill. But if you do feel uncomfortable, you mentioned not liking drawing attention to yourself, and I do get that, although it's a problem no one could ever accuse me of having, think about how you phrase the question. Instead of asking, is this gluten-free, is this gluten-free for every dish, frame it as engaging the waiter in your choices. As they hand you the menu, and before your friends can butt in, ask, for example, could you just point out to me which dishes are gluten-free, or can I just check which dishes are suitable for vegetarians? That way, they can point out to you all the dishes at once, and all you then have to do is mull over which of them appeal to you most. Framing your questions to get the information you want is something that could also be helpful for you, PJ. I always like to ask the person serving me, what are your favourite dishes? And then, is there anything you'd say I absolutely must order? Unless they're particularly hurried or uninterested, in which case shame on them, or they're so new that they've not had a chance to actually try any of the food yet, in which case shame on the management... I find that this usually sparks a really fun conversation, which can steer me towards ordering something I might not otherwise have chosen, but which turns out to be brilliant. You're clearly both very thoughtful diners, and I have to say that any restaurant would be very lucky to have you as their guests, because if you're willing to go to such lengths to get the best out of a restaurant, then the very least they can do is to make sure that you get it.
If you'd like me to have a go at answering your food-related question, you can tweet me at hrwright or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com. For my final segment, Treat of the Week, each week I share something food or drink related that's been putting a smile on my face. This week, it's wonderful wild garlic, sometimes known as ramsons or bear garlic, which comes into season in March and stays around until late spring, although it's arguably past its prime the later it gets in the year. Wild garlic grows abundantly in shade, so you'll often come across it in woodlands and by rivers and streams. You'll know immediately when you've found it by the smell, an unmistakable garlicky, chivy scent. These long, wide leaves look not unlike large, pointed spinach leaves, and in later months will also have tiny white flowers. As a first foray into foraging, wild garlic is a good place to start, as it's so easy to find, and there's so much of it that taking a few handfuls won't deprive anyone else, or more importantly, nature. As with anything you pick, though, do first make sure that it's okay to do so by ensuring that the place you're picking it is public land. If you don't have anywhere near you to pick wild garlic, you can also find it in the shops, or you can do like I do and get my mother-in-law, who lives in the Lake District, to pick and post me some. Wild garlic has many uses, the most popular of which, and the one you'll see all over social media, is to make it into pesto as you would basil. I made some just today by simply whizzing together a couple of generous handfuls of wild garlic with extra virgin olive oil, about an ounce of macadamia nuts, the same amount of parmesan cheese and some salt and pepper. Like any pesto, it's delicious stirred into pasta, drizzled on soups, used as a topping for bruschetta or served with meat or fish. I had mine with a couple of confit salmon fillets. It's also delicious wilted or steamed like spinach and served as a vegetable, or you can also briefly fry the leaves until crispy to use as a garnish, as you might do with fried sage. Chop wild garlic finely and combine it with softened butter to make wild garlic butter, which you can then use in any number of ways, from slipping under the skin of a chicken before roasting it, or melting over either or both of two other treats that spring brings, English asparagus and Jersey royals. In fact, I can't think of a lovelier, more seasonal meal for this time of year than spring lamb served with asparagus and Jersey royals and a generous helping of homemade wild garlic butter. You can add wild garlic to soups like watercress or leek and potato to give them a gentle allium kick. Use it as you would onions in an omelette or frittata. And both the leaves and flowers are wonderful as an addition to any salad. If you pick or buy more than you can use, which is easily done as a little goes a long way, wild garlic can be frozen. Just wash it clean, pat dry with some kitchen towel, and lay the leaves flat in a freezer bag, where like any herb, it should keep for at least a couple of months. It's rare for something so versatile and delicious to be available in such plentiful free supply, so if you live anywhere near somewhere that wild garlic grows and can safely gather some, I'd strongly encourage you to go out and grab some while you can. And if you come up with any interesting ways to use it that I haven't mentioned here, I'd love to hear from you. My mother-in-law went a little crazy this year, and I've got more than even I know what to do with. Just before I go, 
I'd like to ask that if you're in a position to, you'll consider supporting one of the many brilliant charities working tirelessly to ensure that children, disadvantaged families and the homeless don't go hungry during the pandemic, such as Magic Breakfast, Fair Share, Street Smart and the Trussell Trust. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. And I hope you'll join me again next week for more of Hugh's Joy of Food. <laughs>